Hi, and welcome to the Muslim Sex Podcast. This is Dr. Sadaf Lodi, and I would love for you to leave me a review of this podcast and also to share and like it and share it with your friends, see what they think and let me know. I would love to shout you out on social media. And also, I would love for you to follow me on Instagram at Dr. Sadaf OBGYN, as well as TikTok. I also have started a YouTube channel at Dr. Sadaf Intimacy Coach. I'd love for you to follow me on all of those channels. And most importantly, I'd love for you to become a patient. I am now accepting telehealth patients for sexual health as well as menopause health in New York and Michigan. So if you are a woman that is looking for a doctor that understands you and can actually take the time to listen to all of your concerns, reach out to me. Reach out at drsadaf at drsadaf.com. And I would love to see you as a patient. And now for the episode. I am an American board certified OBGYN, a mom, a Muslim, and I'm talking about sex. This is the Muslim Sex Podcast. Welcome to the Muslim Sex Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Sada Flodi, and this episode is everything you need to know about compulsive behaviors in intimacy, porn addiction, and what you can do for your own sexual health. But before I get into it, the first thing I want to make very clear is that I am not giving any type of medical advice. So if you have any questions about your health, please speak with your healthcare provider. And I'm not giving any advice about religion. So if you have any questions about your religion, please speak with your friendly neighborhood religious leader. This is the Muslim Sex Podcast because I just happen to be a Muslim woman that talks about sex. So welcome, welcome. I am so excited to have on with me today, Dr. Shannon Chavez. And Dr. Chavez comes to us from California. So please introduce yourself. I'm so excited to be here. I'm uh, Dr. Chavez. I'm a licensed psychologist, certified sex therapist, and I have dedicated my work to sexual health and wellness and helping people overcome shame and learn to love pleasure again and educate. I do a lot of educating in the community. Also, I'm a professor. I teach grad students about how to deal with sexuality with their clients. So it's uh, been a big part of my life and career. And I'm excited to be here to talk about these topics, which I think a lot of people have questions on. Yeah. So, so, so excited for the conversation today. And thank you so much for coming on. So first and foremost, I would love to get into the topic of what some people will refer to as porn addiction. And, you know, you have mentioned that it's a compulsive behavior. So perhaps we could talk a little bit about compulsive behaviors and how you define them and, you know, what we can do about them. Yes. You know, what's interesting when I was starting my career, there was, you know, sort of sex addiction with this big umbrella of different behaviors underneath that. It could be sex, it could be pornography, it could even be love. And so I did a lot of my doctoral research on love addiction. Mm. And I had a lot of questions. Is it an addiction? Is it a compulsive behavior? I had the opportunity to work with a clinic that used a model called the sex addiction compulsivity model. So it was a little different than the addiction model. It looked at compulsivity around these behaviors as something similar to an anxiety disorder or obsessive compulsive disorder. So something that 
claims our consciousness and can become a coping mechanism or a behavior that can become out of control. It can escalate, it can become something more. So I think people's biggest misconception is that it's about sex or the desire for pornography. I think that becomes the escape and outlet, but beneath that, it's an attempt to regulate. It can be a way to deal with isolation and loneliness. There is usually a mental health condition attached to why people may use this type of behavior to cope. So that's what I was looking at in my model and when I was doing my research. And I developed an attachment-oriented way of looking at love addiction, which was where I was studying. But also pornography addiction tend to come up a lot with my clients. So mm. when we look at it as compulsivity, it, you know, I think the addiction model can sometimes be very shaming or stigmatizing. I think if we look at it as, you know, what are the things driving that behavior? it can help us to have a sexual health model that's positive for that person going forward rather than looking at things very negatively around sex. Mm, I love that. So, yeah, I think I, you know, most of the listeners and audiences would really like to um, learn more about that. So tell me, so how do you frame it more in um, as it relates to pertains to sexual health as opposed to a negative behavior that society sees as completely wrong? First, I always like to understand how someone's coming to that term, you know, porn addiction. Yeah. Oftentimes yeah. that's labeled from someone outside of oneself. So maybe a mm. partner or a provider. And uh, I want to understand the behavior a bit more, how it works, the rituals that go on around it how it, uh, what it relieves. For some people, it does create a sense of relief. Uh, what are the other conditions that may be associated with it? Depression and anxiety tend to be uh, very often associated with that. And sometimes early trauma, early childhood trauma, early life trauma, big transitions in life. I know I've seen a lot of trends with what may be going on in society and increases in compulsive behavior. For example, the pandemic, the big uh, market crashes, some of these big things happening in our social culture do affect how people are coping with that level of stress or isolation or changes to their career and financial uh, stressors. So there's a lot of factors. That's why I think it's, it's important that we thoroughly assess rather than say, all right, this is porn addiction and we're going to treat it all the same way. I really want to deep dive into an individual's history to understand you know, what, what function does it have? And usually what you'll find is there's a lot of shame and guilt around sexual behavior. Maybe there's a lot of mm. repressed programming from early life, uh, a lot of intimacy issues in terms yeah. of you know, the ability to express empathy, show gratitude, be vulnerable with another human being. And a lack of social support. So I find a lot of individuals may have very similar traits. They may lack social friends or community. And that level of isolation leads to this sort of escape or fantasy world into porn. Hmm. It's so interesting that you say that, you know, so uh, I'm really curious in terms of, you know, what type of behavior, I guess that's just probably very individual, right? Like what type of um problem that the individual may be having that this uh, addiction or this compulsive behavior is uh, resolving, right? What is the answer? Why is it the answer to this problem? So for somebody that may be experiencing loneliness or depression or anxiety, how is this helping to resolve that? 
It becomes a form of uh, affect regulation or self-soothing. So mm. it becomes sort of an escape or fantasy or disconnect from what's going on uh. and using sex as a vehicle for relief. So self-pleasure, masturbation. And that's where the shame comes in because it's not necessarily a desire. It becomes a necessary mechanism to feel regu regulated again, to feel balanced. And then it becomes compulsive because that's needed every time. Those stressors tend to activate their system again. And so uh, I'm always clear with clients that it's not necessarily about sex. I think there's a lot of stigma around that. You know, it's about out of control behavior. They're addicted to pornography. I sort of think of it as a process behavior or process compulsive behavior, which means if it's not pornography, it could be uh, being on their phone too much, being on the internet, anything that can sort of claim our consciousness and uh, increase dopamine to that level is going to become a mechanism for, uh, you know, soothing or balancing out moods. So it, it is a mood altering experience. And so uh, I find too, there's a connection with lack of sex education. So I think pornography becomes that escape. If you look at a lot of the research and data, it will show that a lot of individuals dealing with compulsivity had very minimal, not just minimal sex education, but there's not a lot of talk around sexuality within their family of origin. Uh, they may have felt really isolated in their social environment when they were developing their sexuality. So there's a lot of, again, shame and internal negative beliefs about their oneself and, and how they view themselves in terms of their sexuality. It's really important. I think that's so, you know, I'm wondering if there's um, a place for it. You know, I I don't know. Um, I Like you said, most people associate uh, pornography with shame and guilt and, um, you know, something that they're doing, which is, you know, they may feel is uh, wrong. So I wonder if um, there would be a place for, I guess, learning that's how, sort of how I see the sexual health model because it's, you know, sometimes we hear porn's the problem, we need to take away porn and then the problem will be resolved. But I sort of see it as, you know, if we incorporate a healthy sexual health model and, you know, understanding your body, being able to talk about what real sex looks like. If we've only been exposed to pornography and have had no sex education, and we think that is real life sex. Wow. That may be how you learn to interact or talk to women or men. And it, it becomes uh, confusing maybe around your own or orientation or identity. And it becomes this exposure to what we feel is real. And there's a real disconnect from real life situations. And so I think learning, you know, that sexual health is much more than just sex. It's, it is learning those intimacy skills. It's learning about communication and setting boundaries and understanding other people's needs and desires. When I looked at it from an attachment model, I found that a lot of the uh, attachment styles that we may see with compulsive sexual behavior or sort of the avoidant or disorganized attachment. So there may have been a difficulty getting needs met as a child for whatever reason. And so that may be a part of what can be built or learned in a sexual health model. You know, how do I ask for what I want? What if I do have things that are a little bit kinky or alternative in sexual behavior? And, and how do I talk to my partner about that? I found in relationships or marriages where porn has become a problem, there's a real difficulty in talking about even fantasies, what turns me on, and there's a lot of shame around that. Or maybe there's been an attempt to do that with a partner and the partner has shut them down or made them feel 
like what they want is wrong or bad or gross. So I think that sexual health model helps individuals learn those skills. And even in the therapeutic setting to have someone normalize sexual behavior and say, all right, this is, you know, you're not abnormal. There's nothing dysfunctional about dysfunctional about what's going on. And validating their experience helps create healthy attachment. I think that's so important for people that have had such a negative experience or programming around sex. Yes, no, absolutely. I think that, you know, when we frame things in the light of shame and embarrassment and all of those negative emotions, then I think people start to internalize that and then are definitely more reluctant to share that type of information with even say like their healthcare provider or their psychiatrist or their therapist because they've been shamed for it for so long that they really don't know how to get help and reach out because they're afraid that they're going to get the same type of reaction, right? And then what if their provider, their healthcare provider um, thinks that there's something wrong with them instead of helping them? And then I think it just continues that cycle of shame and embarrassment. And then they never are able to get the help that they truly need. Exactly. There's almost a splitting, right? My bad side or what's my more acceptable side. And I see that so much, especially when I'm working with male clients, where there's sort of the splitting off of how I show up in my relationship and then who I really am that I feel I have to hide from people because it's not acceptable or I'll be judged or I'll be told I can't enjoy what I like to enjoy. So I think that there could be a bridging of that, you know, self-acceptance and, and being able to help couples as well navigate this. I know I've worked a lot with couples around the discovery of my partner is using pornography in a compulsive way. And what do I do? It's almost this sort of shattered sense of reality. You know, what I thought was our relationship is not. And now there's this whole other side of my partner that I don't know. And it, it creates a lot of trauma in the relationship as a result of that. But helping that couple kind of find their sexuality and heal together is important rather than it being, you know, you have to go deal with this issue on your own. But to help the coupleship, I, I think, is important, too, for that healing for that individual so that they don't have to split off. They can start bringing parts of themselves into intimacy in a way where they can navigate that together rather than, uh, you know, feeling stuck around that. And I think shame really does that. It makes us feel... Um, you know, this difficulty around talking about things that we enjoy. Even the conversations around sex, a lot of the times when I'm talking to my clients, I talk about pleasure. You know, sex is so much more than just this mechanical thing that we do. It's about connection and pleasure. And it is about, uh, you know, relationships. So learning even that message, you know, sometimes people will say, I've never really heard pleasure talked about when it comes to sex. I always heard sex from a very fear-oriented way. You know, it's bad, don't do it. Here's the things that are normal. Here's what's not. So I think there's a lot of mixed messaging and programming that people have to sort of work with, especially in a, in a space of healing. Yes, absolutely. You know, I'm curious to learn what you, um, what are some things that people can do if they need to navigate that relationship with their uh, partner? So for example, if, if they've never been able to communicate, you know, we know that multiple studies have shown that there's a study that says female sexual satisfaction survey. And in that survey, they found that the one thing that improved a female's sexual satisfaction was communication. 
And we know that, uh, and I'm sure obviously you probably, as a therapist, you probably talk about that all the time to have open communication with their partners. And oftentimes when I have clients for intimacy coaching, that's what they say. They say that, you know, I don't even know how to bring up this conversation with my partner and they're in, you know, or with their husband that they've been in these long-term relationships and they've never had that discussion. They've never had that conversation around sex and what they like and what they don't like and what brings them pleasure. And so what do you suggest for patients and couples that may be trying to navigate that difficult conversation? You know, so many things. I think couples are are dealing with so much in communication. I always tell my clients, I feel like we're over communicating in a lot of ways. We're talking about a lot of things or maybe reporting a lot or sharing a lot about feelings, but really getting into things like values and beliefs around sex. That's one of the first places I start with couples. And that may be uh, really looking at what we grew up learning. If we are from a spiritual religious background, what were some of the messaging? Do we hold those values and beliefs in our current life? Or are those things that are sort of old programming that are influencing us now and making us feel bad or shame around our behavior? So when we learn our values and beliefs, it's much easier to communicate things that are important to us, especially if we're looking at how we want the relationship to function, things like, uh, you know, the quality of sex that we want, even using the term intimacy, I always challenge couples, that's a big umbrella for so many things. What does that mean for each of you? And sometimes there's needs that are met that get sort of blurred in the lines of, you know, sex and intimacy and, you know, loving behaviors. So I think by doing a bit of exploratory work first, it's much easier to navigate those conversations around communication and learning new skills. I think a lot of the times couples are reacting to what the other is saying, and it's difficult to even be curious about their partner's sexuality or something that's different from their own. So we're reacting, you know, I don't want to do that, or I feel uncomfortable about that, rather than curiosity. Why is that something interesting to you? Why, why does that turn you on rather than feeling maybe a reaction to something that's different from one's own interests or perspective? So I think that's important. I always say less is more with communication, you know, being really direct and uh, being very vulnerable, not necessarily vulnerable in uh, the sense of, you know, exposing all of ourselves and feeling uncomfortable, but vulnerability and in curiosity, being able to ask questions, being able to say, I'm not sure how I feel about that. Being very open about where you're at in the moment helps couples feel like they don't have to figure it all out in one swoop, but to think of communication as an evolving and growing part of the relationship, and especially as you start bringing sexuality more into that conversation, there's a lot that's going to come up and, and we don't necessarily process that in the moment. We may think about it later that week or as time goes by, we're processing what that information means to us. So I think communication is something that we do need skills. It takes time to evolve and grow into good communication as a couple. So if you're a couple out there struggling with communication, you are not alone. I feel like we all have you know, concerns that come up, but it's about partnership. And I think that's important to remember in communication. It's not about who's right and who's wrong. It's about learning to understand each other. And we're growing all every day in our relationships. I tell people sexuality changes daily. So we have things that we feel like we know, but they're going to change. And even if we don't know, we want to ask questions. One of my rules in communication is if it hasn't been spoken, it doesn't exist. So we don't want to make assumptions, especially about our partner's interest or desires when it comes to pleasure. 
I love that. If it hasn't been spoken, it doesn't exist. That's so true, right? A lot of times we make assumptions. We think that our partner should know, especially if you've been in a long-term relationship or marriage and you just assume that the other partner should know, you know, and then they're like, well, no, I don't really know what it is that you want or you like what you don't like. And, and I think sometimes also, you know, with that comes, um, Shame and perhaps also the fear that, you know, you don't know enough, but you're afraid to ask. Perhaps your partner knows more than you or, you know, understands or has more knowledge of a certain topic or maybe even about sexual health and you don't know that much. And you may feel a little bit insecure, perhaps, about even asking questions. So I think that, you know, definitely having open communication really, really helps. So what would you say to somebody, say, for example, now, I've seen this uh, a couple of times already in um, more, let's say, conservative communities where, you know, they, the, the individuals, they get married and um, neither one of them has been, you know, sexually active before and then they get married. But then later on, they find out that their, you know, spouse or their husband, whoever is, has been watching porn the whole time. So then they get into this relationship, they get into this marriage and they have a different expectation right? Because they haven't been in a sexual relationship before. But now, you know, because of what they've been exposed to, they think that sex is supposed to look a certain way. Mm-hmm. And then that doesn't mesh with reality. And then they're disappointed. And I've, see, I've seen and I've heard of two marriages that have recently dissolved. And, you know, the individuals were only married for six months. So what do you say to those couples? You know, I know that, you know, as Muslims, um, we're not supposed to be sexually active prior to marriage. And that marriage is really, you know, is a, a vehicle where we can be sexually active. But a lot of individuals don't have experience prior to marriage. And so where do they really get that information? Where do they learn? And so then now they get into this relationship and they don't know what to expect and they don't know what it's supposed to look like, what it's supposed to feel like. You know, what do you how do you guide those individuals? You know, I think that every couple should have some level of premarital coaching before going into marriage. I think marriage is such a big commitment and so many couples, whether they're coming from conservative backgrounds or not, are kind of thrown into marriage and it's like everything's a green light. It's, uh, you know, everything we've learned before that we were abstaining for is now permissible, but yet we don't have any of the skills to navigate that. And I think it's important to acknowledge that. And that's why Maybe pornography, you know, pornography is not education, it's entertainment. It's not a realistic uh, view of how we understand intimacy, but there are skills that we do need. I think that that's important for those couples. What does sex look like outside of, you know, the performative goal-oriented model? I think the connection piece is what young couples are having trouble developing is a sense of connection and learning how to be together in ways that are not just physical, you know, emotional intimacy, learning even spiritual intimacy, sometimes not in the religious sense, but deeper connection that allows you to know one another on a level where you can be vulnerable with every part of yourself, mind, body, heart, and spirit. I think that's so important. So I think for those couples, it's important to know that it's not that you're doing anything wrong. Without those skills and education, we're kind of navigating blindly how to proceed in healthy relationships. And actually, I use the word healthy, but I try to avoid that word healthy, believe it or not, because it sort of implies that this is good, this is bad, or this is the norm. I try to help couples develop what is your healthy, which means, well, partners are getting their needs met, they're communicating openly. 
I try not to make the focus so much about the porn. Again, if it becomes about that, then they're kind of stuck in a place of trying to reconcile or heal from this thing that has already happened. Sometimes I try to use that experience as something that helps us evolve and grow past that. It's just the same with infidelity at times. Sometimes we think of it as such a breach and break, which absolutely, there's a lot of trauma, betrayal, and issues that re resolve from that. But sometimes we can look at that and help understand what are things that we can do if a couple is willing to work from that to help uh, see where we led down that, we were led down that path. What were things that would have helped develop better communication and understanding of one another's needs. So I, I find that there's a lot of, you know, if skills and, and education and understanding are there, it empowers people to feel more ready for handling sex and intimacy, especially in a marriage. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that that's where we fall short oftentimes is that we are really not giving our um, young couples uh, education, premarital education, right, about pleasure and sex and, you know, what is right or what feels right to you is based on, you know, whether or not it's pleasurable for you and, you know, on and also about consent, right? I think that that's something that can be taken for granted in a marriage, which um, should also have consent within a marriage and make sure that both partners are on board and really understand what the other person's needs are. Um, I know that coming up in September, you had mentioned that it is Sexual Health Awareness Month. So what do you do and what do you suggest for people to do during that month? Yes, I'm smiling because I love the idea of sexual health having a whole month of celebration. You know, my, my biggest... Uh, I guess objective in the work that I do is to help people understand that sexual health is so much more than just sex. I think that, uh, you know, even as educators, you're an educator and content creator yourself. It's difficult to put good information out there. There's a lot of censorship. There's um, a lot of, uh, you know, it being considered adult content. But, uh, you know, sexual health is a part of our overall health and wellness. And that's my biggest message for the upcoming month is to help people learn to understand that sexuality is body image. It's how you take care of yourself. It's self-expression. It's intimacy. It's learning to have the skills to be able to negotiate, compromise, set boundaries, give consent. As you mentioned, there's so much more to sex than what we learn. And really moving away from the performative goal-oriented model. I think especially for females. I think a lot of females in certain backgrounds, I work with a lot of conservative populations, they learn that pleasure is really for men and it's something yeah. that, you know, I don't initiate and I don't yeah. know what turns me on. I've never really given been given permission to even think about that. So I think sexual health is also that, realizing that we're all sort of pleasure-oriented beings. It feels good to feel good. And I think that it's so much more than just uh, what we've learned or what we see that sex is. I um, I love Emily Nagowski who wrote the book, Come As You Are. And one of her yeah, quotes is pleasure is the measure. I mean, she talks so much about so many great things that I incorporate into my work too. So Sexual Health Awareness Month is about, you know, learning to take charge when it comes to your own sexual health, being able to spend the time exploring where you're at. Uh, a moment ago, you said, you know, when people say they don't know what they want, I actually love when they say that because I know it creates a lot of fear for people. I don't know what I want. I don't know what turns me on. It feels like pressure to know. 
I always think that that's a great place to start. I mean, not knowing means we have you know, places we can figure that out and it changes all the time. So I think that's really important. And also for myself personally, I'm going through my menopause transition. So I think a big message for myself during Sexual Health Awareness Month is also to help women overcome some of the stigmas around menopause as being seen as this sort of end of sexuality and a place where our bodies change and we don't enjoy sex. I really want to change that message. I am out here trying to advocate for women to, you know, learn to, you know, not medicalize their experience of menopause and get the right support and treatment if needed, but also not to fear those changes. And some of my clients are having some of the best sex of their lives during menopause. So I hope that during this month, we can also help uh, with those transitions and changes that especially women experience to not fear it and embrace it and feel more empowered. You know, I, I love that because I think that women during menopause, um, there is a lot of misinformation about menopause. And I think that sometimes, you know, women get the messaging that this is the end, right? Like menopause, forget <laughs> it, it's, we're done. And I agree with you. I think that there are so many ways to bring back pleasure in menopause. And actually, you know, menopause is, is this amazing time in a woman's life where she no longer has to worry about being pregnant right? She can just yeah. enjoy uh, sex and sexual health uh, just for the sake of it and not really have to worry about whether or not she's going to get pregnant. You know, I think a lot of times people don't talk about, you know, the issues that a woman may have during that time, which may be some vaginal dryness, you know, and what can you do for that? And really it becomes important to be able to find a practitioner, a provider that can give you information on what you can do to make sex pleasurable again, um, you know, if you're having difficulty and what you can do to decrease the friction and find things that um, are really exciting to you and pleasurable. I think that women, as they get older, actually become very confident mm -hmm. sexually because now they've had the experience. They know what they like. They know what they don't like. And hopefully they are learning how to ask for it and uh, you know, give themselves permission, as you say. I think that's one of the biggest things that holds women back is they do not give themselves permission to experience pleasure. And I think that that is unfortunate, but there's a lot of room for growth in that. And you know, once you give yourself permission, then you find that there's so many possibilities. And I love the fact that you said that you enjoy Emily Nagoski, I love her work, and in fact, one of the things that I quote from her all the time is that, um, and it's actually really my favorite quote, is she, she says that to want sex is to have sex worth wanting. Yes. Right? And I think that that plays in part so much to what you say about women that say, that believe that really sex is for their partner and it's really for their satisfaction and they don't really even enjoy it. And they don't, you know, like they just want to get it over with because they see it as like a wifely duty. And, you know, it's just not something that they've ever been interested in. And, you know, in the back of my mind, and it's a question that I ask those patients and cl clients is that, you know, but have you ever experience sex that's been worth wanting for you, right? Are you being pleasured? Are you enjoying it? Are you um, experiencing what it has to offer? There are definitely people that don't have any interest and that's okay. Mm -hmm. uh, but for those individuals that are interested, that are curious, you know, that they, it's important for them to know that there are ways and that there is hope and that they can achieve the pleasure that they want. 
Yes, exactly. I mean, I focused a lot on self-pleasure and I know a lot of, you know, conservative people will have, you know, belief systems that have been instilled around masturbation being bad or sinful, but it's important to think of self-pleasure as a form of self-regulation, taking care of your body, touching your body, even outside of touching it in a sexual way or for pleasure, just being able to touch your body without judgment. So I do a lot of work with women around, um, you know, embodiment work, helping them to even look at their vulvas and understand how their anatomy works so that they don't feel that, you know, the idea of, you know, someone has to give me an orgasm or sex is about someone doing something to me, but it's about creating experiences with a partner that feel good for you. And not, not every sexual experience has to be this passionate firework experience, but that sex is sort of like the food we eat. There's different menus for different moods and to think about, you know, designing a sexual life that's right for you. And I think you made an important point. Not everyone, you know, the, the norm is not having a high libido or being, uh, you know, your desire always being high. It's about learning how to navigate the ebbs and flows. And that's important too at, at any stage in life. I also work with a lot of mothers who say, are you kidding me? That's the sex is the last thing I'm thinking about right now. And I feel so much pressure. My husband wants sex. What do I do? So I think that's important to recognize. You know, we're not always at this place where we're trying to be high desire. We're trying to understand our energy. That's a big part of my discussion around sexual desire is let's understand how your energy works. And is your energy going out towards things that are draining you? So pleasure feels like something you want to put on the back burner. We don't have energy for it. I hear that. You probably hear this a lot from your patients and clients. I don't have time and I'm not getting good sleep. And there's so many things that have to be considered to help people get to that place of satisfactory sex. So um, mm. I guess my point in that is it's not one easy solution. It's not a quick fix. I think Emily Nagowski definitely talks about this as well, but it's, um, it's a lifestyle change. And that's why I look at sexual health as overall wellness, you know, to look at every aspect of your life. How do you move? A lot of women that I work with, we, we I may recommend a dance class, something where they can start moving their body and pelvis in ways to get that energy moving in their body, to start feeling good in their body. Not just sexy, but I feel good in my body. I feel strong. There are things like that that really help build sexual confidence that we might not necessarily connect initially. I love how you incorporate movement in that. And I think that's so important because not only does it help with the self-esteem and your body image, but also increasing the circulation and the blood flow to, you know, your pelvis and increasing that will only help with, you know, your pleasure and um, increasing your libido. I think it's also important to recognize, just as you stated, that, you know, sex and sexuality change as we go through our changes through life, right? And um, I think there's another author, his name is Marty Klein, that talks about uh, sexual intelligence. And I think that's realizing that, you know, sex will look different at different stages in our life, but that's okay. And it's normal. And it's normal for it to be like that. And really, it's about accepting where you are right now in life and loving yourself right now as you are in your life. And just really being okay with, I think, who you are. And that, I think, also goes with body image. I talk to a lot of practitioners that deal with obesity medicine and 
you know, I think it's sometimes individuals will feel like, well, you know, I'll love myself after I lose 10 pounds or after I look a certain way or after I, you know, whatever. But I think what's important to realize is that it's important just to love yourself right now, like not to wait for a day in the future to love yourself, uh, but to love yourself right now. And I really believe that, you know, the, the energy that you project is the energy that you receive. And so to hopefully, you know, always emanate good energy so that you always receive that back. Exactly. I mean, that's such a good point, too. It's uh, I, I hear that with sex, too. I'm kind of waiting for the ideal moment or we're, we're waiting until we you know feel a certain way rather than kind of starting where you are. And I often do that when I'm working with couples just to think of. Even the erotic connection is something different. Sometimes I'll point that out even in session when a couple's kind of laughing and kind of playful. That is what I call an erotic spark. I think adults are not in a playful place when they're thinking about sex. It feels like pressure, obligation, expectation. And when we're in a state of play, we're very much in our limbic brain. We're in our emotional creative brain, which makes pleasure such a, a different pathway. It makes it easier to sort of incorporate embodiment and touch and sensuality. So I think that's important for, for couples as well as to learn to play together. You know, how do we play? What do we enjoy together? Often I find that that's a strong part of intimacy for a lot of couples, but it feels like such a divide from sex that I always want to bring that together. What are you doing over here that feels really enjoyable that we can bring into uh, a sexual space. And it could be you know, hobbies, passion activities, exercise, movement, things that they're doing together, cooking meals together. I always try to point out the erotic, even in those activities, so they can see, oh, okay, you know, we're not as far away from this place as we may have thought. Yeah, I love that. You know, I like how you bring it into something that's very accessible, right? So when you mention something as erotic or, you know, something that creates intimacy, I think that that sometimes can seem like a foreign um, adventure or something that's very difficult to attain. So the fact that you bring it up, you know, in even creating meals or walking or, you know, taking a walk together or doing something that you really enjoy, but just doing it together where you are really focused on the other person, you know, it, it brings, it shows people how accessible intimacy is and creating that emotional intimacy that often women desire before they are able to get to that physical intimacy and to allow themselves to be so vulnerable with the other person. Exactly. Yes. And it builds emotional intelligence. I mean, there's just so many benefits for a relationship. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So any pearls that you would like to give our listeners before we go, anything, any parting thoughts that you think would be helpful in somebody that's trying to navigate uh, sexual health and perhaps maybe some compulsive behaviors that they're trying to work through? Um, any suggestions? Yes. First of all, you're, you're not alone. I think there's a lot of stigma around sexual concerns overall. So, you know, getting support and help. It's important to know that if you're having difficulty navigating that on your own, there's a lot of professionals out there that can help finding good help. Also, I think with when it comes to therapy, working with uh 
a specialist around certain issues and developing a good relationship. So uh, finding someone that you can work well with. I know I've worked with a lot of clients that may have had negative experiences when talking about sexuality with providers. So in that case, you know, finding a good fit is important. It does take time, but also, uh, you know, it's absolutely normal. I always say 100% of people have sexual concerns. We are all going to go through them in our life. It is nothing to be ashamed of. And also if shame exists and those are things that you're dealing with, that's also normal. You know, shame is something that is embedded in almost everything we learn when it comes to sexuality and intimacy and, and how we, you know, just all this programming, you know, whether it's social media, media in general. So uh, to be aware of that also, what you're consuming and how that's influencing how you feel about your own sexual health. Mm. Love it. Well, you know, I think that that's one of the big things um, that we need to understand and recognize is that, you know, having negative feelings is normal, but allowing them to limit you and creating limiting beliefs around those negative feelings can really hurt you. So I think that seeking out help and finding people that are affirming and really will allow you that space that you need to navigate those feelings is really important. So I think that's why I really applaud the work that you do as a sex therapist. I think that it's really important. And I agree with you 100%. I was just talking to somebody this morning and I said, every single person has a sexual health issue. I said, I don't care who you are. I don't care. Even if you deny it and say, no, no, I, I never have. That's not true. Every single person has one. So I think it's really important to recognize that and know that you're not alone. And, you know, the questions that you may have are completely valid and important. Yes, yes, absolutely. All questions are good questions. That's right. (laughs) That's right. Well, how can people get in touch with you? You know, somebody listening to this is like, wow, she is amazing. I have to get in touch with her. How can they get in touch with you? So you can get in touch with me through social media platforms at Dr. Shannon Chavez. My website is also drshannonchavez.com. My practice is shapecenter.org. So we do offer a complimentary phone consultation for new clients and also workshops, retreats, lots of different uh, avenues for treatment. So uh, something for everyone. So I'd love to hear from all of you. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Chavez. I know that this was so, so enlightening for me, and I'm sure it was for our listeners and viewers as well. And well, we are done here and it's been real and really intimate. And remember, this is not meant to be any type of medical advice. So if you feel that you have a healthcare issue, please speak with our provider. And until next time, this is the Muslim Sex Podcast. So thank you for listening to the podcast and make sure you leave us a review, share and like the podcast. And if you leave me a review, I'd love to shout you out on social media. So be sure that you share it with all your friends and thanks for listening.